Good afternoon, and welcome to Books Sandwiched In. This is the first program that we're having in this series, which replaces the Brown Bag Green Book series. Um, my name's Glenn Walter, and I'm Friends of the Library president. Our speaker is City of Knoxville's deputy to the mayor and chief policy officer, Dr. William Lyons. Uh, he will talk about Nate Silver's new book, The Signal and the Noise, Why So Many Predictions Fail, But Some Don't. Dr. Lyons. Thank you. Uh, and I'm going to give a, a little bit of background about how I got into all of this convergence, which is where we are today, of policy and events that occur in social science, along with probability and statistics. And what brought me to that mainly was through my academic pursuit. And I'm, I'm going to be approaching this much more as somebody who is a professor of political science for over 30 years and, and also somebody who was in the statistical methodology model building end of it or the quantitative end of it. Uh, like a lot of people in my age cohort I can see in here, I was in college during the late 60s and early 70s in grad school. And I started off and went a long way as a math major. And unfortunately, the 60s were going on at that time. Civil rights movement, Vietnam, a variety, and the variety of, of things that were a lot more exciting about uh, differenti than differential equations and calculus and all those other sorts of things. So I ended up taking a lot of mathematics, which I really got kind of tired of, and wedded it with what I was most interested in, which was politics and government, and mostly what was happening and whether the world was going to end in 1968 with the assassination of Dr. King and, and uh, Robert Kennedy and everything else. And I'm sure a lot of folks in here had similar experiences and ended up in pursuing the mixture of how do you use those mathematical tools and statistical tools to understand social and political events but my bias wasn't so much on the outcome and the prediction. My bias was always on understanding the underlying model. Why do people behave the way they do? Well, why do some people decide to be liberals or, or conservatives? Why do folks uh, end up being Democrats or Republicans? Why do, in my own per particular interest, is very relevant to where we're going today, why do some people end up voting and not voting? That's been a, a major professional uh, interest that I've had. Now, the book, The Signal and the Noise, uh, is by Nate Silver, which, if you haven't read, is absolutely first rate. And it's first rate uh, in a number of ways, it, it, partially because of its modesty and its ability to achieve what it purports to achieve, which really is how do you formalize and take into and understand decisions we make every day, both individually and as a society, about the likelihoods of various outcomes. And we're interested in all kinds of outcomes. Nate Silver started out interested in baseball. I mean, he was interested in lots of other things, but professionally, he was very much interested in baseball. My colleague, Jesse Mayshark, mentioned he was on ESPN one night talking about this and didn't seem all that comfortable discussing, discussing that with all the, uh, the sports commentators. But he is interested mainly in how do I bring models and perspective to understand and predict outcomes that are useful. And in the case of baseball, the utility was how do we recognize who is going to be a good baseball player? And this is something that people who invest large amounts of money in drafting during the baseball draft, various young people, putting them into the minor leagues, 
uh, and investing uh, phenomenal amounts develop, trying to develop in the minor leagues with the idea is this investment is going to pay off with somebody who is a successful baseball player. That is a that was his major interest, and you can see why folks are interested in the outcomes. Now, from my perspective, in reading his discussion of his interest in baseball, I was immediately struck by he doesn't really seem all that interested in why some things are good predictors and why some things are not, other than toward the utility of a good prediction. Let's clear up a couple of words. Prediction and forecast. A prediction, and he uses them both interchangeably in a variety of ways, and sometimes he uses one versus the other. A prediction is something very specific. This person is going to hit over 400 in, or that's a little unrealistic, over 350 by the time he's been in the major leagues for three years. And he will be in the major leagues in three years once we put him in the minor league system. A forecast is something like this individual has a 70% chance of making it to the major leagues. Well, Silver starts his discussion with baseball. He later ended up getting into what I found much more interesting. I'm into baseball, too, I guess, like most people, up to a degree, not anything like he was. He ended up segueing into the business of forecasting electoral outcomes. That's where most of us know him. And most of us know him through the... And I have to admit, I was addicted to this thing, reading the 538 Politics blog in the New York Times, uh, in which every day he would collect all the information that was out there from surveys that other folks did. He did not independently do surveys. And aggregated all of these, had a systematic way of weighting them, and then as the election got closer, or as the not whatever he was the point of interest was, would have an ongoing prediction of the likelihood of one versus somebody else winning. And uh, this would change, uh, and it would change based on new information. And so what, what his hook in the book is, the use of Bayes, what he calls Bayesian statistics, and Bayesian statistics just is the use of models that continually update and build on new information as it occurs. For instance, daily, if you looked at the probability of Obama winning, which Nate had virtually throughout the entire process of the election, it varied from a probability of 65 percent, 80 percent. There were, you know, it varied a lot. Well, obviously, after the first debate, it went down. The polls went down. They adjusted. It was adjusted for new information. Then it ended up going back, going back up. And he, his predictions caused an all, a lot of consternation. Now, as a caveat, none of that stuff is in this book. The book came out prior to all of this, and it gets very little attention in the book for probably the reasons y'all came and also to impose my own interest on this. I want to spend some time today talking about that because the, the key to the book is why do some forecasts and predictions work and why does some not work so well? And the entire question after the election was, Romney and his folks apparently really believed from their evidence they were going to win that election. It, and to some degree, you have to sort through when people say, of course, everybody's going to say they expect to win. You have to do that to get your folks to turn out. But apparently, they really did believe that from the evidence they sought to utilize. Whereas they're going along saying that, using such, in, including such indicators, and Peggy Noonan had this big column where she talked about this, including things like vibes, like I'm out going to uh, rallies, and never has the enthusiasm been more at the rally in the last week, and using that as the indicator. And there was quite a bit of, uh, you know, 
people looking for Nate Silver to get his comeuppance where, if he was wrong. Well, actually, he was incredibly accurate. He aggregated all the state surveys and had all or virtually all of them right, had the outcome correct, uh, and but always expressed it probabilistically. In a way, it's almost a cop-out, just like, and I'll talk about this in a minute, like predicting the weather. If you say there's a 90% chance of winning, well, okay. If Romney had a won, well, there's a 10% chance he would have won, and he won. I mean, you know, and then you explain it afterwards. So, But with that aside, I found his use of the tools, of the statistical tools that he used, being systematic, being unbiased, uh, allowed him to, be, to have a tremendous track record in, a, in predicting and forecasting the outcomes of elections. And personally, I have to say, not only was I impressed with the skill that he brought, but I was even more impressed with the way he presented what he, what he was doing and explained what he was doing. Well, a couple of things I'd like to, to do. And it, as I decided it, in approaching this today, I didn't want to make this a book summary. It's tempting to get into that. In Chapter 1, he says X. In Chapter 2, he says Y. What I thought I would do is pull out the themes of the book and discuss them and use examples across a lot of the chapters to explain what he's talking about. Basically, the title really says it all, The Signal and the Noise. The signal is the truth. The noise distracts us from the truth. Now, when I would teach the classes in the university about uh, statistics, which everybody thought was they dreaded, one of the places I would start was always, there's nothing unusual about any of this. We all make decisions based on probabilistic outcomes, and we do it using variables that have proven to be useful to us and dismissing variables that have not proven to be useful to us. Um, everything like, your and I'm going to use this to get into some of the main points that Silver makes, Y'all decided to come in here today and invest some of your time to listen to this. Now, I know at least a few of you had me in class and maybe thought, well, you know, he was moderately interesting. On the other hand, some may have had me in class and said, that guy was boring, I'm not coming, and they're the ones who aren't here. Uh, also, some have come to previous discussions and found those to be useful and found this to be useful, and some have found just the object of talking about books to provide some utility, but everybody has some model that has some variables that to you have proven out to be good indicators. You also have all sorts of noise in there. Well, I went to hear one of these a few weeks ago or a few months ago, and I was a miserable day because um, there was a wreck, and I was late getting there and I had to struggle in. Well, to extrapolate from that one event and to try to use that as an indicator for what would happen today is clearly that would be noise. You wouldn't want to build in a model uh, that included that sort of thing. That's sort of the randomness that, that occurs. And so we all use the uh, systematic model of taking uh, indicators that are useful for us, sorting through them, dismissing the noise, but we don't, we're always operating in uncertainty. And that's a key in everything we do. There is literally no certainty. Any model we have of anything, and Silver goes through a whole range of models that involve uncertainty, and they, that uncertainty uh, sometimes it can be reduced, and sometimes we can get good information, and sometimes the information is really pretty useless or pretty weird, and we're not much better off than we were before. And sometimes there are other idiosyncratic things that you can never build in your model that lead to the uncertainty. As some of you know who work with me, I was in the hospital last week losing a lot of blood. I mean, I think I'm about 70% today. So you go, well, 
How are you all to know that? How much will that detract from the effectiveness? I, I don't think I'm going to keel over, but, you know, that's something that, that nobody would have, any, would have any way of knowing how to model. So let's talk a little about what Silver does. He has a couple of themes that run throughout this. One is whether you're talking about, and I'm going to go through a lot of the things he sort to model and predict, baseball, politics, weather, economic trends. Now, for, and let me stop with that one. Why did nobody predict the economic downturn, or why systematically did economists and public policymakers not predict the 2007-2008 crisis? Why do people who invested in pension funds <laughs> not predict the 2008 uh, downturn? If you, now, by the way, if you looked at enough people, somebody probably did, you know, just like somebody is going to win the lottery, but the vast majority of, re- of people who are entrusted with understanding these things missed horribly. People who get paid a lot of money to make economic predictions in aggregate and people whose interest banks, you know, and investors rely on failed miserably in that. That's an example, and we'll talk a little about why that was the case. Another example that he uses is predictions that actually work pretty well, and one of the ones he uses is the weather. We've gotten pretty good about predicting the weather up to a point, but we are not very good at predicting it further out. And so we, in, in all of these involve a couple of notions. One is, do we really have a good model that we understand, or do we just have a sea of data that we're kind of wandering around in and, and relying and it's using equations to come up with outcomes that we really don't understand that but people become relied upon. He, and I share this bias totally, he puts this into the notion of hedgehogs and foxes. That, that is uh, not, he didn't invent that, but it's used by a lot of people. Hedgehogs are people who get an ideology, get a perspective, apply that, use that to guide the data that they collect, and are very narrowly kind of ram the prediction model into that very narrow frame. Uh, and he sees a lot of the data, the people collecting data and using very narrow approaches as hedgehogs. Foxes, on the other hand, are people who have look at multiple indicators, not driven by ideology, to as much as possible removing bias, and then coming up with a prediction that weighs both all those numerical, quantitative, model-building things with just plain human judgment. I mean, just purely that. In baseball, there were two camps. The people that believed you could collect a ton of data about this ball player. Everything about their height, their weight. You see, I'd be out of there real quickly. Uh, you know, their speed, uh, what they did in junior high, anything you could collect, and you could put that in and say, this person is going to be a successful, uh, is going to be a successful shortstop. Then there was the, you know, the guy you used to see at the baseball games, the scouts who would go there and they'd have their little pads and they'd have their, you know, hats half cocked going, just observing and trying to get kind of the it factor. There's something about this player that makes this player successful. And whether the analog to that would be, there's one thing about collecting all of this data, but there are people who know that interesting things happen where there's the plateau and fronts come over and different things happen, and you really can't build all of that into knowing that certain things happen around this lake that we really can't model. And so silver, and then he would go through that with, uh, let's go into politics. 
You can have all the variables that you want. There's the sense of the appeal that the candidate has, the, uh, the way the media is covering the person, that it is incredibly hard to measure and build into a variable. On all of these things, one of the first things Silver says is a really incredibly gifted statistician, in my opinion, is don't over-rely on either of these things. You know, the, you need them both. But the last thing you want to do is mindlessly rely on quantitative models that you don't really understand. Uh, in discussing these, he gets into what are some other reasons that forecasts don't always come out right. Actually, in weather, I think that was one of the most fascinating discussions. He said, weather reports overall are biased and slightly inaccurate on purpose. That is, the people delivering the weather reports, let's take a local weather person, may figure everything tells me there's an 80% chance of rain, but I'm going to say there's a 90% chance of rain because the costs of my being wrong and people being mad at me are all on one side. That is, you didn't predict the rain and it rained on me and I'm mad. Uh, and overall, part of their interest is, is not being accurate, supposed as being useful in what the prediction is. And that, that was very interesting to me, along with the, uh, another interesting notion in, in weather, which is with all the value of all the computers and all the tremendous ability we have to predict, especially if you could look at the prediction with that Hurricane Sandy, that was incredible. I mean, that thing went up and turned exactly when it was supposed to turn and wreaked pretty much the havoc that it was supposed to wreak where it went. The advantages we have in the models were tremendous. I really was incredibly impressed with that. With all of that, the, the person doing the predicting has a certain amount of interest. But for the most part, if you go out more than 10 days, you are better off going to what's the equivalent of the almanac and getting the historical data than you are looking at a 10-day forecast, you know, in terms of accuracy. But short of that, you're way better off using the, the forecast model. All of his examples come back, though, to, to the same theme of using the data wisely, finding the variables that are useful, getting rid of the noise, doing the model, and this is where I am the most comfortable. Don't talk about it unless you really kind of understand what's going on at some sort of a basic level. That is, I get very uneasy if somebody's going to talk about politics if they don't understand. People actually do study this stuff and find regularities in that. You do know basically why people vote. You know what the probability is going to an election that a Democrat is going to vote for a Democrat based on all sorts of things that hold up over a long period of time and Republicans to Republicans. And, and you have a pretty good model of who's going to turn out and who's not going to turn out. But if you're going to talk about it, to me, you really sort of at a gut level need to almost have in your mind's eye a picture of that voter looking at the television, seeing an ad, and knowing, well, that somehow leans me to support candidate X a little more. That's where I approach this stuff. Or knowing that from all the data and all the study, one thing that when I would teach electoral behavior was one of the major points of why people vote the, uh, in elections and how to affect elections was one of the biggest things you can do was make personal contact with the voter. That has been since 
throughout all the decades, it has not faded, it, despite the appeal of mass media in making contact with the voter and using that. Now, it's a lot easier to spend a lot of money and buy a whole bunch of ads and blast everybody with negative images of the other person and, and all the rest of it. But there is a model of voting that one can use that, if one understands, involves personal contact. The uh, people in the Obama campaign very much understood that and used tools in incredible ways they had never been used before to actually make personal contact. And that turned out to have one thing. It didn't affect who they voted for. It affected their propensity to vote. And that's all this stuff was about. Not changing anybody's mind so much, other than a handful of independents, which if you can find very many of them anymore. But in having the people who were so inclined to vote, vote a certain way. So let me go through a few things that that he went over and then maybe get into uh, some of the electoral stuff and and some of the models that he built there. Uh, As I said, weather predicting works very well, or quite well. Predicting economic trends still doesn't work all that well, despite masses and mounds of data everywhere. I mean, what's what's been the effect of the compromise or whatever it was that avoided the fiscal cliff, now you'll sing, well, maybe the fact that everybody's taxes went up in January is going to cause this much recession. Maybe it's not. But frankly, I don't think there's any cons- really good, reliable consensus from any set of models that, of what that's going to happen, in, despite massive amounts of data mining that people do at monumental rates. Because, frankly... The economy is so incredibly important and involves so many micro decisions that are made every day and affected by so many things that we really can't model very well that we do still do a pretty crummy job of forecasting that. Now, why is because there's way too much noise and there's a shortage of good signals. And and if you look for enough indicators, you will find them. He gets into uh, talk about climate change and terrorism. Two, two very interesting chapters and what the impact of al-Qaeda was. People took great interest in knowing what's the likelihood that there will be a terrorist outcome. Well, think of how incredibly hard that is to model. I mean, you can probably try to build in all sorts of measurements of people who have access to weapons, their motivation, whether we're in a war or not, uh, the difficulty of transporting oneself to this country, Uh, the degree to which we have security or don't have security at various buildings. But it still comes down to a one decision one person would make out of millions that we have a hard time predicting. And one of the things that, uh, that he spends a lot of time on is why did we, the people whose business it is to predict these sorts of things, not predict 9 11? And he made the point after the fact, there are a whole lot of indicators that would have told us. That, nine, that people would be flying planes into buildings after the fact, if we knew where to look. But before the fact, it was too much data, and there was no model that anybody had that, that showed that that's how the people were thinking. So nobody was looking for it. And now 9-11 changed the models. And that's, that's one of the reasons doing, predicting that sort of thing is incredibly difficult. Is it worth trying to do? Silver would say, yeah, it's worth trying to do. One of the reasons is any leg up you can get on anything is worth the effort given the incredible negative magnitude of the outcome. I found that discussion really uh, very interesting. Um, Climate change is another. 
And this is the one where he gets most into the fact of you need to separate science from politics. And that that is most difficult in the climate change discussion. He, and, and one of the things that Silver is very much a believer in, and we'll do this when we talk about politics, is aggregating the work of lots of other people and, 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 and doing that in a systematic way. In doing that, he's fairly convinced that there's evidence that there's climate change. But in focusing on global warming, there were times which the signals were very contradictory and you really wouldn't, it was hard to come up with data that buttressed that theory. It was a little easier to come up with a broader climate change and, and a lot of it had to do with the models that people used uh, that turned out not to be, as we learned more, turned not to be useful. And at this point, he, he goes into a little bit of a discussion of one has to be able to, to look at things in an unbiased way. And if you're bringing a political inclination to you want the outcome to be and politicizing the, uh, the discussion, how damaging that is. And I think we all know how that takes place in the climate change discussion. There are people for basic reasons who want to impose an ideology on science. And uh, that, is, that is something that if he's going to sort of preach in the book at all, that he tends to do. Silver really is only interested in the outcome. I mean, that's, he's mildly interested probably as a citizen in some of the things that lead to the outcome. But he's really interested in the outcome. Uh, that is, and it's just like it was baseball. And, that's, and, and he's comfortable talking about either. And, he, and it's clear he has his own preferences, but he's interested in predicting the outcome based on the model. Now, somebody like an academic who studies this stuff, if I'm studying elections and politics from an academic perspective or research perspective, I can assure you there is nobody in the political science world, or nobody, that's a little strong. Very few people are very interested in anybody doing research leading to models concentrating on outcomes. They want to know the model. That's what's interesting. I mean, like, and the outcome will take care of itself. That is, are people paying more attention to party or candidate? Can you persuade people through the media? What about personal contact? The way all of that works to me is you understand the political process that way, which is what a lot of folks and all, almost all academics are interested in. Whereas people who are in the prediction forecasting mode see that as a necessary step you go through to get to the outcome. But frankly, if there are a couple black box variables you don't understand all that well that work, they're pretty comfortable with that. We don't quite know why this is the case, but if X happens, Y seems to happen. And, and you can find lots of models where people use that. One of the things he uses along the way is there were all these crazy models about the Super Bowl winner and who's gonna, or the World Series winner and who's going to win the election that don't even really make any sense. Or if somebody wins the Super Bowl, then we're going to have a recession, and you'll, you'll see this kind of thing pop up all the time. Uh, well, I'm not interested in that stuff at all. To me, that's just some things randomly covary and go together, and if you get enough stuff you collect and enough data, some things are going to go with something else. But if it doesn't make any sense, I don't have any interest in it. He's a little more interested in it as long as it makes sense. He talks about earthquake prediction like that. You know, a lot of people went around predicting certain earthquakes. How do you have a model that predicts an earthquake? A lot of it is you don't have enough data. You know, you may, certain things happen with an earthquake here, but with the indicators we have, that may seem to imply a prediction later, but we don't have enough data. One of the things he talks about, and I want to get into challenges to good models, one of it is extrapolating when you don't have enough data points, you know, from a few things that happened in the past. Uh, and, that's, and that's, 
very difficult to do, and that causes poor predictions. Another poor prediction model is a bad model. And, and we had a lot of that, or a non-existent model, for predicting economic outcomes. Another is you just have too much noise, and, and you can't sort through the noise. Where silver is, is whatever it is, we have to live with uncertainty. We don't have any certainty in any of the models that we use at all. Uh, self-fulfilling predictions. I found this very interesting and actually pretty substantive. Sometimes you make a prediction, and it actually causes the outcome to some degree. And we, you know, uh, this is something social scientists always use to uh, see as a challenge. Um, what, what example did he use? Take the primaries last year, the Republican primaries. If a survey is done with some credibility, he used the Iowa primary that showed Santorum doing a lot better than people thought and winning. Is that going to draw some people to support Santorum? Well, Silver would say, it probably did. Not a whole lot, but it probably did. Why? Because these candidates, a lot of them are pretty much the same. And if you hear this one is successful and this one's down to 2%, you're going to dismiss them. And you can fairly easily move from one to the other, such that the likelihood of success will lead you to support one and dismiss another. That is not the case in the general election. You know, very few people who have a, a a predilection toward one candidate are going to, they're there for a whole variety of reasons, and that decision is not going to be affected by one small piece of data. But the, in the Republican primary, the folks are not committed to any of those people to speak of. And they could move from one, you know, fellow traveler in the same, in the same uh, perspective, uh, Michelle Bachman to Santorum. I mean, to some people, well, you know, really, what's the difference? You know, you can go to, from one to the other very easily. So that, that is one of the challenges he looked like, is understanding that. Uh, and there are lots of models of that. So what I'd like to do now is talk a little bit about what happened in these predictions and why some of them went wrong in the 2012 election. Okay. How did Silver approach this? What Silver did, and he's not the only one to do this. There were various sites you could go to like Real Clear Politics, they do this, there's in-trade. There are a whole bunch of places you could look about the giant aggregation and collection of all the polls that come out. And what, what Silver did is he took and aggregated all of the surveys, as I said, and weighted them and, a, and had a continually adjusting approach devoid of bias that led him to, to make forecasts. So what did all those polls have in them? And where did the polls that Romney was relying in differ? And the answer to that is fairly simple. Just about everybody went, and survey research is very powerful. The data just about all the surveyors collected was fairly comparable. I mean, somebody could go out, PPP, you know, is one of them, uh, leans Democrat survey, could go out and do theirs and come up with an outcome. One of the outliers would gallop. We might talk about that a little, but most of them that going out there pretty much ranged in the, and came in the same direction. They used the same methodology, they, and almost everybody does, and I've done some of these surveys and been accurate on some and not so accurate on others, all rely on a whole lot of assumptions you have to make. And one of them is, I can survey you, and you could say you're interested in voting, but how do I really know you're going to turn out? You're going to vote a lot of times, and, and every, every polling organization aggregates the electorate and the respondents and weights people in there according to a model. And what the professionals in this, and their business is to be accurate in this, 
they bring all sorts of things. They, they bring a lot of interest from the election at hand to the model. And what a lot of folks were picking out, the neutral, and I don't really like people that lean whether way doing surveys. That didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But even those that lean came up with similar results, which weighed the electorate and showed that there were, seemed to be a lot of interest uh, continuing in people who were inclined to vote for Obama, more so than you would have expected from historical trends. And word that this turnout should have receded among young people, especially from the first time he ran to the second time he ran. And they built their models, and they, they noted and they readjusted, using Bayesian statistics, to what they found, their turnout models, to basically have a higher proportion of Democrats voting than would otherwise be expected to vote. And therefore, when they put these pieces together and, and, and came up with them, they continually showed Barack Obama four points ahead, two points ahead, six points ahead. But it was, you know, you could look at this and there was a clear, uh, a clear trend where he was, especially toward, toward the end, where it looked like he was headed toward both an electoral college victory and a popular vote victory. Well, the folks who were uh, doing the survey work that the Republicans were relying on did not want to accept that. It wasn't consistent with their, with their model of turnout. Their business is trying to come up with something they think is right, too. You might wonder, well, why did that happen to coincide with, you know, with, with Romney doing better? But their model of turnout was significantly different. It relied more on their classical model of this is how many Democrats ought to vote and underplayed what they found there, and they thought that would fade away, that excitement wouldn't hold. They wouldn't really believe it would hold. And then they would buttress that with some other uh, – evidence that they would have, such as people turning out at rallies and that the Republican turnout would be higher. Uh, As it turned out, the turnout was a lot closer to what most of the professionals came up with. And as Silver picked this all up and aggregated these surveys, especially based on the sophistication they used to capture turnout and their methodology, the results were uncannily accurate because, in fact, something different was happening in the electorate than people expected. What was that? The Obama campaign. It wasn't that these folks just decided to turn out. It was some disaggregated, disembodied phenomenon that just occurred. That turnout was higher because of incredible skill and hard work by that campaign. That is, they, were, they affected that outcome. And, uh, and later, there were, and afterwards, it was interesting because if you go back 8, 12 years, the Republicans were thought to be way ahead in using computer models and statistical models and, and, and you know, getting the outcomes they wanted. This time, the one thing that I think made a difference in this election, and I think probably was different, caused a difference in the outcome, is what both of these differential models sought to, to tap. And that is the Obama campaign found ways to make personal contact with voters and make sure they voted and get them to the polls. And they did that using tools that were heretofore somewhat unimagined and incredibly complex and using databases that were incredibly sophisticated, such as Facebook, going and even finding people who said they supported, who were supporters and wanting to know what they could do, reaching them, and having those folks contact all of their friends on Facebook and saying, pay attention to this, or please, or do you need any help, and going into depth in the social media heretofore unimagined. Uh, using databases to make sure people were called and contacted in, in a variety of ways. Now, uh, unwittingly, this was enhanced by the fact that the narrative was, and there's reason for this narrative, 
that a lot of the folks, especially in key states, is not only you need to do this because you support President Obama, you need to do this because the Republicans are trying to depress your turnout in a variety of ways. And again, there was some credibility to that when you looked at a lot of things that were happening in a lot of states. So that, as it turned out, that added to the narrative that was used by the Obama folks to, to get people to, to turn out. The other thing was an incredible on-the-ground understanding block by block in key states of where every single voter was and having those folks contacted uh, by phone, by email, by Facebook, in person, offered rides. And, you know, what's kind of humorous to me is this is classic pre-media politics that sort of got rediscovered. And the Republicans put the X amount of resources that could have gone there into buying more ads using the mass media approach, which obviously works as a strategy. But in this case, I think they tapped into something else. How did the models change? You don't have to be in this business very long to know that the consumer, the voter, gets what's going on and somewhat resents the attempts to manipulate him or her. I mean, you really, it's obvious. Many of these, you know, the standard ad is you show the opponent in gray and black and white, and you have a couple outrageous claims. That's sort of eye-rolling material on all sides now. Does it maybe have an impact? Well, maybe if you see it 17 times, it does. Luckily, we didn't have to watch that stuff here because in Electoral College, we weren't in play. But... The people who are really swift, the people who are going to win, are sensing, all right, we're going to cut back some on that, and we're going to put something here. Now, back to what we're talking about. The people who did the more successful predicting saw, understood, adjusted their models. The signal, the things that were signaled in that model about somebody turning out and voting, they captured in their models. And the noise, how many people are consuming ads, and all the other things that would measure somebody's propensity to vote, they underplayed appropriately. And that's just a case, in my mind, of having a better model. The electorate is now working a little differently than it was. I personally think that's sort of a good thing with my biases. There are downsides to it, too, I guess, in terms of democratic theory. But a successful model worked and unsuccessful models didn't work. And he has a series of good conclusions, which I will read. Um, Nature's laws do not change very much. As long as the store of human knowledge continues to expand, as it has since Gutenberg's printing press, we will slowly come to a better understanding of signals, even if never all of its secrets. Why is this such a good book? It's incredibly timely. It's very accessible. It is accessible to the degree of depth necessary about statistics, prediction, math, Nothing turns most people off more than throwing a bunch of, uh, you know, stat talk and models and sigma signs and Greek letters around. It's none of that. It's real simple. This went up and this tended to co-vary with this going up and this mattered and was accurate in giving you an outcome and this over here is inaccurate in giving you an outcome. Take it and apply it all over all of these areas. Look for the pitfalls and then, and then you can understand a little bit why we're good at some things and we're not so good at some things. And Probably people right now are inspired to say, I've got to get the model that's going to actually tell me when the next economic downturn, stock market downturn is going to be, and then I'll end up being real successful and, and be famous or rich or both. Yeah. Dr. Lyons, I just wanted to ask about something you said there at the end, and that is when you're talking about using mass media, and then you said, obviously, that works. And yet, with this election, you had you know over a billion dollars spent on television ads. 
on the side that lost. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if he said anything in the book about specifically that side of things or your thoughts on whether or not that's true anymore, whether or not running a bunch of ads makes a tremendous amount of difference. He didn't address that at all. I can tell you this again, this book was out prior to the election and he really didn't get into very many, into much detail on, on the, on those models. I think generally I would still say that most candidates and most political advisors, and there's a whole, that's a whole group of folks are very interesting. And probably most academics are still going to say that you got it, that political advertising is essential and effective political advertising is, is an essential component of running a campaign. And I would agree with that. But where do you weight it is the difference. Is How powerful is that? I think the weighting on that has probably gone down and the weighting on other things have probably increased. And so if you've got resources you're going to expend, you don't want to expend it where it's not going to give the most payoff. I, th- I think there's still perceived utility in good ads, and I would be amazed if the next electoral cycle we still don't see tons of, of these ads. But over a long period, it, and maybe what it'll do is maybe make them somewhat more effective and engaging, but, you know, uh, that's about as far as I would go on that. Betty. By its nature, you can't really predict a black swan. Right. Um, was there a black swan in this election? What was it? Was it... Um, the 47% video, was it Hurricane Sandy? Was it, what do you think it was? And how probable is it that you have a black swan that just, uh, right. that affects? I'm glad you put yeah, it that yeah. way. The, there are always, no matter what your model is, you've got random events that occur. Sandy was pretty much a random event, and it definitely had some kind of impact. I think most people think it had some kind of impact, both on, the framing of the of, of the Obama as a leader and a functioning leader and able to get along with Christie and all the rest of that. That was positive, not just for that area, but overall. Uh, the 47%, that wasn't random. That was just something that, <laughs> a mistake that still popped up that, that was, I guess it was random in that it was revealed. It was one of the supporters that happened to have it. You never could model that, you know, or you can never model it and say, this candidate going in, I guess you could say, based on his history, candidate X who's I don't even know he's less experienced. It's more likely to say something dumb, you know, in front of a microphone, you know, and impact him. So it's, but that's something, again, that Silver would say, I'm going to refigure and I'm going to look at that event. And he's going to shift his probabilities as he sees the surveys reflect that. And he, that's, and, you know, so he sort of builds it in in a way. But that's what makes it so imperfect and so uncertain and really makes it where all you're doing is predicting and modeling what you can model. When I heard that 47%, I thought, that isn't going anywhere. That's not one of these things that's going away in a couple of days. And I'm sure you felt the same thing. This, is, this, this comment, by its nature and how it was delivered and its tone and where it felt in and everything about the chemistry of the race and the media advertising, to be fair, that Obama had made it to frame him early, Romney early, as the candidate of, you know, just the, the top 20% or whatever percent, made the hedgehog... Uh, who would just not pay attention to it and who was partisan, go, aha, there's something there. And that's what I think Silver would be one of the first to say. You need people out there coming up with and identifying these things and informing you if you want to understand this election. And that's be one of them that I don't think you could ever model. There is a context of personality, of events, of the past, of, you know, uh, currents out there that you just sort of have to understand and if you're going to make sense out of whether this this – candidate has been successful or why they failed. He doesn't purport to do that. 
he almost purports to be disinterested in all that. But what he says is, I've got the model. I'll give you the numbers, but pay attention to the baseball scouts. They're out there, too, telling you, how do you know? I forgot the guy's name. But somebody they couldn't account for, he's the wrong size, he's the wrong weight, had the wrong background. But if you saw him, he worked 23 hours a day. He hustled. He, he studied. You know, he did all kinds of things to get him to be a successful baseball player that didn't fit any of the models. But the person who observed things over time said, this guy is going to be successful. Or conversely, not to get anybody local, there are all kinds of local football players, quarterbacks one can think of that seem to have all the indicators that weren't all as successful as might be because of these other peripheral variables. Okay. The, the book talked a lot about the economy. And when I was reading through all the predictions, I understand that it's very, very complex. There's lots of factors. But um, when I got through all of it, it just kind of makes me want to go, well, why do we listen to anyone? Because the the economy clearly is so difficult to understand, and there's so many different variables, and there's lots of data. And even when they talked about the downturn, they discussed the fact that there was a lot of noise, but there were some really good signals that just got lost. I know we were all in a frenzy, and everybody was excited, and no one wanted to hear the bad news, but there were some really strong signals. So what do we do now? Do we we listen to any of this nonsense, or (laughs) it just just was not very encouraging about what we hear on TV that any of it's really accurate, or that there can be any signals that really can be identified? We over-relied on aggregate data, I think is what it was. One of the assumptions was you got X amount of bad mortgages. If you slice them and dice them and spread it around and everything, this whole system will work and you can make money because massive amounts of them would have to fail before your little piece would actually go under. Well, I remember reading a number of you back in 06, 07. It was actually in an article in some newspaper, maybe the New York Times or Chicago Tribune or something. I look at a thing that in Colorado, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people who had gotten a bunch of high-risk mortgages were failing. And I remember noting that at the time going, you know, it was a perfect storm of awful stuff. You had people who, who were giving out mortgages to anybody and making up data and not checking background stuff and banks being encouraged to give these loans and people making money off the loans and all this kind of stuff. But Shoot, it's rated AAA, and everybody's buying into all the kind of, kind of thing uh, that very few people, I think, were stepped back going, you've got this person going in, getting this mortgage. They're going to fail in much greater numbers than we thought and sort of having the insight into picking up on that. I don't know how you model that stuff. And a lot of it is the irrational exuberance. There was people saying, we don't have business cycle anymore. Everything just keeps going up forever. So all the models that had a business cycle, forget those. Well, you know, actually, those models are probably still right. But, you know, it's real tempting to want to buy into the new one because, you know, especially when somebody's selling, you're going to make a whole bunch of money off of it. I I don't have a real good answer to that other than you'd hope people would hone the models, would be more careful. But to me, it's always step back from all that gobbledygook and think, here's an individual. They're going in. Somebody's motivating to give them a loan they shouldn't give them. This person's unable to pay it. The assumption is housing prices will go up forever, so you can always refi the thing, you know, and make it good that way, and you get all this free money out of your house. I mean, we've been dealing with this since tulips in Holland and before that. It can't just go up forever. I mean, the value of housing can't keep going up forever and people being able to afford to pay for it. I mean, it's that simple, but actually nobody wanted to buy into that because it went against all kinds of other interests. And he addresses that a little, but it's frustrating of all the models. Those are, the, to me, the most frustrating, and I don't think that we're a whole lot better off than we were on that, frankly. 
Okay, I guess uh, in summary, I want to thank everybody for coming. I found this to be a whole lot of fun, and I didn't keel over, so I'm feeling that this was successful. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.